pray together. Father, we praise you for the living word who is Jesus, who has given our lives hope, who serves as our life's light. God, as we look forward to his return, you have called us, your church, to be about your work, that of glorifying you as we live faithfully in light of all the promises you have given us. Father, might we be men and women who know who you are as you have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. Lord, we thank you for how your word directs our worship. God, it results in our worship. For as we contemplate how you have revealed yourself in scripture, we are made so mindful of our desperate need of salvation, of our need for your forgiveness. And so, God, we've confessed our shortcomings. We claim, God, your faithfulness to forgive when we confess. And we give you thanks because because you are faithful, we may be forgiven. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we may stand before you in confidence. Lord, and as we look forward to our Savior's return, you have given us a work to which we are to be about. We ask, God, that you would just remind us this morning of all that you have done for us, of what you are doing for us, and God, what you will do for us when you return. May we be faithful. Would your word now, we, we pray, would your word open our eyes to our great need of your gospel? Lord, and would you teach us, we pray, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, Please open them with me to Judges 13. Judges 13. When we last looked at Israel's judges some three weeks ago, prior to our Easter-inspired hiatus, we considered Jephthah the reproached, rejected, and then restored Savior who recounted before Israel's enemies God's salvation story. But when the time came, displayed imperfection in salvation. As in his ungodly zeal, Jephthah made this crazy vow which led to the death of his only child. He then followed this up with his unrestrained extermination of the arrogant Ephraimites. It was a frightening act of fratricide. And we concluded with the observation that Jephthah's story revealed Israel's continued Canaanization while offering glimpses of God's promised salvation. For the Messiah's birth, like Jephthah's, would be scandalous. He would be despised rejected by those he came to save. And his life story is God's message of hope, the gospel. Jephthah, as we saw, was God's instrument of salvation whose imperfections pointed us to Jesus, the Messiah, whose salvation is so very great. And church, this is what I believe our author desires we see again in the story of Samson, one of the most familiar, if not the most familiar judges of the entire book. But before we begin reading from chapter 13, I'd like to comment briefly on the section of Scripture immediately preceding our text for today, namely verses 8 through 15 of chapter 12. 8 through 15 of chapter 12. So if you have an NIV, you'll notice this portion of the story is subtitled Ibsen, Ellen, and Abdon. Now, they were the judges who succeeded Jephthah, and like Jair and Tola before them, who we examined about a month ago, we're given very little information 
about these guys. You may recall from our look at Judges 10, 1 through 5, how following Abimelech's death, our author provided a scant synopsis of two, these two of Israel's minor judges in order to, as we said then, segue into the story of Jephthah. And we noted that our author's brevity then wasn't because Tola and Jair were necessarily unimportant, but likely because he desired that his readers see his purpose for writing. Meaning the book of Judges isn't merely a record of those who led Israel prior to the kings. This isn't a work of history, so to speak, like that of, say, Josephus, where the historian records as much as he can find in order to capture the past to the best of his ability. And yes, the author of Judges is writing about the past, but for a very different purpose. His desire, I believe, is to point to the future, to the coming judge or deliverer who would share much in common with his predecessors, but would be without sin. And thus, I believe these, these little interludes of sorts serve to keep our author's end in mind. As here, chapter 12, verses 8 through 15, we're given little more than the three judges' names, that they had numerous children. It's a fact which stands in sharp contrast to Jephthah, that they led Israel for a period of time and then died. And such a lack of information is rather jarring when we compare that to the full three chapters we saw together with, with Jephthah. And it's going to be even more so when viewed in light of Samson's four chapters. And I believe that our author once again employs brevity to keep us from fixating on the judges themselves. He also continues to remind us as readers of Israel's cultural assimilation because you'll notice the glaring absence in these verses of any reference to Yahweh or to the land's rest. In every instance prior to Gideon, a judge's tenure ended with a statement like, and the land had rest or the land had peace for 40 years or something to that effect. And, and yet following, we see these examples following Gideon, but we see these examples in chapter 3, verse 11. We see it again later on in chapter 3 and verse 30. We see the same reference in chapter 5, verse 31, and then again in chapter 8 and verse 28. However, after Gideon's tenure, they're replaced by a simple statement that so-and-so led Israel for however long it was. And it's a change that I believe reveals the growing absence of God's rest even when Israel wasn't enslaved to a foreign power. So as the judge's story progresses, we see the cancer-like effect of Israel's sin as their hope, their joy, their peace, and their plenty is replaced by sadness and despair and war and paucity. Even in times when they had much as were, and they were free, they display a discontentment revealing spiritual and poverty and slavery. And so as we look to verse 1 of chapter 13, bear in mind that despite three successive leaders whose terms have been marked by plenty and peace, evidenced by Ibsen's many children and Abdon's many grandchildren, each of whom had a fancy ride, Israel is still far from the Lord. And as we'll soon see, rather than crying out for relief, they're now coexisting with their Philistine enemies. They even react negatively to their deliverers' efforts to change the status quo. So these are the depths to which Israel has fallen as the curtain rises in chapter 13. And so I invite you to follow along now as I begin reading from verse 1. There, chapter 13, where our author writes, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines, 
for 40 years. And let me pause briefly just to state the obvious as our first point for this morning. That is the just nature of God's wrath. The just nature of God's wrath. And I would hope that by this stage of our study, these words are beginning to sound familiar. We've heard this refrain sounded a record five times now. And this doesn't include the reference given in chapter 3 and verse 7 because there it only reads the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, granted, that was clearly not the start of Israel's sin, but I'm only counting from verse 12 in that same chapter where our author first employs the adverb again to describe Israel's return to the very practices of forgetting the Lord and serving idols that had prompted God's initial anger and punishment at the hands of Kushan, Rishathaim, and the Arameans. And so, we've seen these words before, and so we won't tarry, except to point out the order in which all of this takes place. First, Israel sinned again. And then, God punished them. Cause and effect. Action, reaction. Sin results in suffering. Disobedience, in punishment. There's a natural order to what we're seeing here. And, and church, this comes as no surprise, right? I mean, we would all agree with these statements. This formula is one that's recognized the world over. It's even a noted law in nature. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Newton's third law, right? So we would all concur that the order here of Israel's sin and God's judgment is natural. We might also say it's just or it's right. And yet, isn't it amazing how often we like the Israelites sin, mess up, foul up, do evil in the eyes of the Lord, but the moment we're delivered over into judgment, we cry out, why? Why? That's not fair. I didn't deserve that. We behave like the motorist who's going 60 on 50, headed to Ocean City for the beach. He gets pulled over by the trooper for speeding. He's shocked. Isn't he? He's shocked. Enraged, he responds to his bride's gentle reminder, I told you to slow down, honey, by pointing out the numerous other beachgoers all going faster than he. Why was he the one that got pulled over? This is hypothetical, just in case you were wondering. Why did he get pulled over? It just isn't what? Fair. just isn't fair. Reading these words on paper, I would imagine that we would all quickly agree that sin deserves God's punishment. Even, even those who are struggling with the concept of God would claim justice for those wrong, particularly when they're the victim. And yet, when it comes to the nature of God, we struggle to view His wrath as just, choosing instead to dismiss it in favor of His love, as if we can dictate God's character based on our personal preferences. It's like building a burger at Five Guys. We behave as if we can create the God of our choice and that he'll then be real. Friends, I believe that this fantasy reveals nothing more than the truth of our inheritance of our first parents' sin. For this is their, this was their failing, wasn't it? The serpent told Eve, God didn't, he didn't really mean what he said. You can decide what he meant. You, you can choose what's right because you're God. You don't need him. Fruit won't kill you. It'll only make you wise. Have you been struggling with the reality of God's just wrath? Maybe you're experiencing it. And this doesn't necessarily mean that your life is marred by physical illness, material poverty, and relational dysfunction. Because remember, Ibsen, Ellen, and Abdon 
You may very well be as wealthy, influential, and powerful as President Donald Trump, and yet remain under God's wrath, as evidenced by a disquiet in your soul, a discontentment in your heart, and a distraction in your mind that you simply cannot address. Israel sinned, and again, and God responded justly in wrath delivering them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years, at which point we're told, verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile, remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not set anything unclean or eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah wasn't with her. Let me pause there, church, to note to note the richness of God's grace. The richness of God's grace. We've observed the just nature of God's wrath. Here, I believe our author directs us once again to see the richness of God's grace. And, and I believe he does so in at least three ways. First of all, in the conspicuous silence that separates verse 1 and 2. By which I mean, Israel is sinned. God has judged them and delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. And as we've said, none of this is new. Thus, going off of prior experience, we would anticipate verse 2 to open with the words, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, right? I mean, this, is, this has been, is and has been, Israel's response to every foreign oppression until now. Only, verse 2 says nothing about Israel crying out, or even caring to. It, it would seem that they're quite content to be under the thumb of the Philistines. Or they're so disillusioned by religion that they've given up any hope of rescue. And yet, what does our God do? Despite their silence, he sends his angel to inform his people of a coming deliverer, a child that will be born, who will begin the deliverance of Israel. Church, just as Israel remained lost in their sin. So did we. At one time, we were just as Israel was, dead in our transgressions and sins, following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, our neighbors, co-workers, friends, family, even like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's just wrath. We knew about him, but we neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Our thinking was futile, and our 
hearts were darkened. We were like sheep that had left their shepherd, had no desire for his leadership in their lives. We were silent in our sin. But then God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, meaning while we were still living quietly, so to speak, under Philistine occupation, God sent us a Savior, who is Jesus. Do you know him? I believe we see God's rich grace in his gift of salvation, given despite his people's silence. I believe we also see it in his servant's lowliness. His servant's lowliness. You notice how our author informs us of the husband's name, Manoah, where he's from, and his tribe, but his wife, the main character of this chapter, remains nameless, just as she is childless. And it isn't that she's yet to bear children. This poor woman is sterile, a fact that is repeated by the angel, just in case she wasn't aware of her condition. And what, what I believe our author desires to communicate here, church, is the point that God's plan did not depend upon any special gifts or attributes possessed by people. He didn't need a special kind of person to fulfill his purpose, a unique vehicle, if you will, to accomplish his mission. Because he's God, he didn't need anything, but rather he chose the foolish things to shame the wise. He demonstrated his omnipotence by taking human obscurity and helplessness, the very things that we disregard as impotent, worthless, the circumstances and the and the things, the individuals that we regard as worthless. And he brought about a good that to this day blows minds. God demonstrated the richness of his grace as he promised to send his people a deliverer who would be born to a barren and nameless woman, a display of power precisely at the point where his people could contribute nothing. And thereby directing them to lift their eyes to himself in order that they could have no illusions or delusions about where their help was from. And church, in the same way, God sent his son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. He didn't choose a big city for the site of his arrival, but a remote village. He didn't pick a palace as the place of his birth, but a lowly stable. God took the things that we despise and through them worked salvation by his grace for all who will confess their sin and believe in Jesus. Have you been hesitant to believe the gospel because it sounds counterintuitive? <laughs> well, it is. Because God designed it that way, that we might not rest in our own wisdom and strength, but solely in Him and His great grace. God's people didn't cry out for help, but He graciously sent them a deliverer. He didn't require parents with a heroic pedigree, but graciously promised an anonymous, childless woman that she would bear a son. A third evidence of God's rich grace, I believe, is given in his words of instruction. His words of instruction. Do you notice how verse 3 reads, The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, God spoke his word to this woman. Providing her with a promise, a promise that she then clung to. As verse 6, we're told how she went to her husband to tell him about all that had happened. And she notes how the man had to have been an angel of God because he looked very awesome. 
And that's an understatement, right? Very awesome. Now, it needs to be noted that she doesn't refer to God here by his covenantal name, Yahweh, which is rendered for us in our English language translations by the word Lord, all caps. She uses a generic reference to God, revealing, I believe, her ignorance at this stage of his character and confusion regarding his plans. However, while the angel's appearance has clearly awed her, notice what it is that she conveys to her husband. It isn't a description of his glorious appearance, although I imagine she could have tried. What is consuming this woman is the angel's words. It's words that have given her peace. Words that have brought her hope. Words that have filled her with joy. She's going to have a son. And church, it was this same word spoken by God's angel so many years later that brought the promise of peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests. As a virgin came to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and this child of promise is great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God would give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The good news of great joy that was proclaimed for all people was the news of the promised Messiah's birth. A child set apart to God from before his birth. In truth, as Peter declared in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 20, from before the creation of the world. He was only revealed in these last times for your sake so that through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word that brings perfect peace. This is the word that brings fullness of joy and lasting hope because this word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know this perfect word of instruction? The richness of God's grace is fully displayed in his words of instruction, his servant's lowliness, his people's silence, and his answers to prayer. His answers to prayer. Following his wife's, jubilant outburst there. We're told, verse 8, that Manoah prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And what I believe makes God's answer to Manoah's prayer a display of grace is first the fact that Manoah has no idea who he's addressing. You notice how it's our author here who informs us that Manoah prayed to the Lord, all caps, Lord, or Yahweh, but when we read Manoah's words, he, he, reference, he uses that same generic reference that his wife used earlier. Further, his request is quite odd, considering his wife's been told all that they need to know in regards to raising the child. Now, it would appear to me that Manoah either disbelieves his wife or he's jealous, or possibly both. Re regardless, I feel that this is an instance much like we saw with Gideon, if you recall, and his fleece. Because Manoah doesn't need a personal visit for any reason but pride. And yet, what does God do? He hears, and we're told that the angel of God came again. But you notice how God demonstrates that he's seen through, I believe, seen through Manoah's arrogance? As the angel doesn't capitulate completely to the man's request, does he? Oh, the angel comes back. He returns. But to who? Not Manoah. <laughs> The angel comes again to his wife when? When the husband's not there. And church, prayer 
is one of the great mysteries of faith. For through prayer we have access to the very throne of God. We are able to speak with the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator God of the universe. Prayer is like being granted access to a direct line to the president of Comcast. So every time your bill goes up, you don't have to deal with the marketing department or that frustrating financial side of things. You can actually call someone who can do something. Only prayer is infinitely more powerful because the one with whom we're communing is infinite. And the fact that he hears us, church, broken, sinful people, is all grace. And friends, I, I pray that we never forget the grace displayed in God's hearing our prayers. Because as men and women who live in a Christian culture of sorts, I know just how easy it is to assume that God hears our prayers because He's God. That's just His business, right? And yet as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 66, we don't deserve God's listening ear. In fact, if we cherish sin in our hearts, He'll ignore us. But, because of his grace, the psalmist sings, God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love for me. God graciously heard Manoah's prayer and the angel returned. At which point we read verse 10. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here. <laughs> he's here. The man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the one? Who spoke to my wife? A strange word of introduction, isn't it? Strange word. And one that I believe provides further insight into Manoah's doubt and God's grace. As the angel responds, I am. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what's to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord replied, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. None of, this is, none of this is new. But it appears that Manoah either now wants to justify his foolish request or attempt to assert some form of control over the angel of the Lord. Because now, he says to the angel of the Lord, we'd like for you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Yahweh, all caps. And here I, our author finally states, I believe, what we felt all along. Manoah didn't realize that this was the angel of the Lord. For then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what's your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. A sad reflection of Israel's spiritual state when God's people have to ask him his name. But the angel responds, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. And that's a fascinating statement, church, that can be interpreted, I believe, in one of two ways. It can either refer to the marvelous character of God as communicated through his name, and in that case, the angel is likely directing Manoah and his wife to the miraculous and saving works that God performed during Israel's exodus. And all of them were beyond understanding. Or... This might be a reference to the only other instance in the scriptures where this same term is translated as beyond understanding. And that's in Psalm 139.6 where there it describes the marvelous knowledge of God. And in it there's a specific reference to God's deliberate, skillful creation 
of a baby in its mother's womb. So either way, the angel's response silences Manoah, who then took a young goat together with a grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. So, whatever vague and distant memories he may have had of things he'd learned about Yahweh in his youth, what he'd done for Israel, suddenly all of it returns, at which point Manoah breaks down, we're doomed to die, he says to his wife. For we've seen God. Does that sound familiar? It's a response similar to Gideon's, right? Back in chapter 6 where he offered an offering and the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with his staff. It burst into flames and the angel disappeared. There, chapter 6, we're told that the Lord then told Gideon to take a chill pill. But now, I believe, keeping with Israel's growing canonization, it isn't the Lord. It's Manoah's wife who calmly, and might even have been a little smugly, corrects her husband, saying, if the Lord meant to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. So Manoah may have been theologically correct about seeing God and living just as Gideon was, but he fails to display any appreciation for what God was doing. It's, it's as if Manoah has these facts about God that he's memorized, but he's forgotten. And now after all these witnesses, these truths just come flooding back in, but they aren't connected in any way. They, they, they represent nothing more than lifeless religious sayings whose value lies in their power to persuade and control. Manoah's knowledge of God here is like that, I believe, demonstrated by many liberal biblical scholars today who, who don't actually believe that the God of the Bible exists. However, they study the Bible because of its influence on culture its impact on, on, on literature and history. For these individuals, statement like, statements like that referenced here by Manoah are simply examples of religious language reflecting the social guardrails of man-made belief systems where fear is what is induced to control. What's glaringly absent is any sense of relationship or of personal connection between the words of the angel and the person of the God who actually spoke them. And sadly, it's not the leader of the home here who finally connects the dots. It's Manoah's unnamed and formerly sterile wife who then, verse 24, we're told, gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So we've noted the just nature of God's wrath, the richness of his grace as we close i'd like to note like we talked about with our kids the light of his promise the light of his promise and i believe that this truth is communicated in two ways first of all in the birth of god's promised deliverer samson and in this fulfillment of his promise god demonstrated as one pastor theologian noted that he didn't merely raise up a deliverer who was as it were already available like othniel or ehud rather he grew one, I love this phrase, from scratch. He grew one from scratch. Church, 
I believe it's essential that we see this tr- in, in seeing this truth that we that we are not misled to think that Yahweh's salvation is ever an ad hoc band-aid affair, a piece of divine crisis management instead of a plan that He has had far in advance. The beauty of God's great salvation is that it was planned from before the foundations of the earth were spoken into being. And it was then first promised to Adam in the garden when following his sin, God declared that one day the offspring of a woman would crush the serpent's head. And friends, the thread of that gospel promise then runs throughout the tapestry of Scripture revealing God's great salvation. And so I I believe we see the light of God's promise in the birth of His promised deliverer, Samson, whose name, ironically, means little son. S-U-N, son, not S-O-N, son. Or it it can mean sunny boy. (laughs) That's quite bucolic. But it would be nice for us if this reference was to God's light or to Yahweh's son. However, the most common explanation for this name is that it referenced the Philistine solar cult that served as the background for all of the Samson narratives. And so what I believe this name communicates here is once again the focus that we've seen exhibited by our author from the very beginning, and that is to shine his light, pun intended, on Yahweh and his great salvation, as even though Samson's parents, in the naming of their son, show deference to a sinful Philistine idol, God still graciously fulfills his promise. So we see the light of God's promise in the birth of his deliverer. And, second, in the terse summary of this Savior's childhood, which I believe is intended, once again, to point us to the light of the world, whose own childhood the gospel author skipped over in favor of his birth, infancy, and ministry narratives. And I believe that the brief summary of Samson's early years reflect those of Christ in the Gospels. And so we might be directed to see how the light of God's promised salvation is Scripture's story. From its beginning in Genesis to its end in Revelation, the Bible is the story of God's great salvation. As He, God the Son, came in human flesh, the light of the world, the Word was born of a virgin, lived and walked amongst His creation, fulfilling God's law perfectly before dying in our place. He was buried in a tomb for three days before he rose again, the event that we celebrated last week. Do you know this, Jesus? I pray that you do, because we all face God's just wrath, no matter how hard that is to accept. And on our own, we would all perish. But God's grace is so rich that he sent his son to stand in our place. I pray that you know this promise and the light of this promises shining in your life filling your heart with unspeakable hope and your soul with unshakable joy but if not then as we close our service in a moment and as we sing trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus I'm going to be standing down front I would love to speak with you about this and if you're here this morning and maybe you've been following Jesus but simply not publicly. You've never taken a stand before your church family or any others to declare, I am a follower of Jesus. His light shines in my life. And maybe God would lead you to make that public today. For the Bible is clear. If we're ashamed of Jesus, 
now, then he'll be ashamed of us when he returns. Let's pray, would you? Father, you are good. And as we see, your word constantly draws our eyes to see who this Jesus is, our Savior, and makes clear our need of his forgiveness. God, thank you for the reminder, gospel reminder, of how this was worked for us by your grace. How rich is your grace. And Lord, we pray this morning that if there are any who have never experienced this grace, that this morning, having heard your gospel, God, you have brought life as only you can bring. And Lord, this would lead us to then acknowledge a work that we may not even be able to explain, but a drive that we feel to confess our wrongdoing and believe in this man, Jesus. Lord, we pray that this would be your glorious result today. We pray in your name. Amen.